Well, good morning, everybody. We're going to continue our series today on the book of Acts and want to welcome those of you just joining us now from our Farmington Hills campus or watching online, as well as those of you with me here in the Northville Sanctuary. Uh, our leaders at the Farmington Hills campus have encouraged me to remember to mention Farmington Hills whenever I speak as a way to tie our two campuses together. And of course, I'm really happy to do that, uh, especially today when campus pastor Sean Carroll told me that he would give me $1 for each time I mention Farmington Hills. Um, but of course, I would do that even if that weren't uh, the arrangement. Uh, because really, ever since I heard about the Farmington Hills vision from the Farmington Hills elders... Uh, I knew that the Farmington Hills campus would be a blessing, not just to Farmington Hills, but well beyond Farmington Hills. So whether you live in Farmington Hills, or work in Farmington Hills, or go to school in Farmington Hills, or have ever been to Farmington Hills, or love somebody from Farmington Hills, let's all pray Farmington Hills blessing, and Farmington Hills goodness, and Farmington Hills flourishing, not just in the Farmington Hills members and the Farmington Hills elders, but all on through whom the Farmington Hills campus will have influence, that God will work in Farmington Hills and through Farmington Hills and beyond Farmington Hills to the glory of our good God. And everybody except Sean Carroll said, amen. Farmington Hills, Farmington Hills, Farmington Hills. Yeah, well, today we've been, we've been looking at the first church from the first century in the New Testament book of Acts. And I'm going to go on record today and tell you that the book of Acts is one of my most favorite books in the entire Bible. The book of Acts picks up where the Gospels leave off. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are the story of Jesus. In fact, the word gospel means good news. And the Gospels close with the death and resurrection of Jesus. And you remember that when Jesus died, the hopes of the disciples died too. They were disillusioned, they disbanded, they went their separate ways, and then a few days later, the risen, resurrected Jesus appeared to them. Jesus has conquered death. The disciples regather, they re-energize, they galvanize. Uh, if, if Jesus can conquer death, if Jesus is alive, then all things really are possible. And the book of Acts opens with the risen, resurrected Jesus giving his final instructions as he ascends into heaven. And the disciples are watching this thinking, what now? How are we going to carry out the ministry of Jesus with Jesus no longer physically present with us? And they figure this out as they go. This is what I love about the book of Acts. There's no manual for this kind of thing. There's no detailed instructions. They are figuring it out on the fly. I love that. And they, they gather together and they worship and they pray and they go out and they do the things they saw Jesus do. They heal the sick. They proclaim good news. They preach of the coming kingdom. They care for the poor and the outcast. And their numbers begin to grow. This little community begins to grow and their hearts are being transformed. People that used to hate each other culturally are becoming one in Jesus Christ and all the, the barriers and walls that exist are crumbling by the day and they exhibit unprecedented levels of generosity. And I want to use this as an opportunity to call out some of the new kinds of generosity we're seeing this fall in our own church. Each fall we hold a coat and blanket drive 
We don't make a big deal about it. It's just kind of a casual mention. And last year, you gave uh, about 150 coats and blankets. Very good. We, can, we collected 150 coats. This year, we've collected more than 500. Yeah. At the same time, uh, each year, we collect gifts for the Christmas store in central Detroit. You and I contribute new uh, toys, and those toys are sold at dramatically discounted prices in central Detroit so that moms and dads have the dignity of purchasing their own gifts for their kids. And last year, uh, you gave uh, 440 gifts. This year, more than 700. Yeah, there's something, uh, there's something going on. I don't know what that something is yet, uh, but generosity is almost always a sign of inner transformation. And the New Testament community, the first church in the first century, exhibits these remarkable levels of generosity and care for the poor. They sell their stuff or they give stuff away in Jesus' name, and there was an abundance of joy and freedom and purpose, and outsiders, observers say, I want to be part of that. I want whatever it is that they have, and their numbers begin to grow, and we saw in Acts chapter 2 that in a single day, their numbers grew to 3,000 people. In Acts chapter 4, their numbers increased to 5,000 people. Isn't that great? One church, 5,000 people in the New Testament. Now, if you've ever been part of a rapidly growing season of a church or a business or an organization, you know there are growing pains. Things that happen naturally and organically now, to, now need to be intentional and structured. And a new level of structure is needed. A new level of leadership is needed. New people are coming into this first century church with new ideas. And their new ideas sometimes clash with the ideas of long-time existing members. And the new members coming in come from different ethnic backgrounds they had been a small, homogeneous, mono-ethnic group, and now they're a very large, multi-ethnic group, and so there are these internal tensions that they're dealing with, tensions uh, from inside. And then externally, their growing size has attracted the, uh, the attention of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire is very concerned that this new growing Christian community is subversive or anti-government. Now, it's mostly a misunderstanding because we know that Christian people are some of the best citizens in all nations because our scriptures teach us to pray for those in authority. Our scriptures teach us to pay our taxes. Jesus said, render unto Caesar. Uh, Our scriptures teach us to care for the poor and to love our neighbors. Uh, We can be great citizens. But the word on the street uh, in the first century was that these Christians were saying, Jesus is Lord, at a time when people were supposed to say, Caesar is Lord. It was very confusing. These Christian people said, Jesus is King. And so the government, the Roman Empire, was more than a little suspicious, and they did not make it easy for the church. And so the church here in their early movement began to experience assaults from outside and assaults from inside. Assaults from outside, persecution enters the story. And assaults from inside, these these tensions, these conflicts, 
the temptation to pretend that we talked about earlier. Um, moral problems come from within, assaults from the outside and assaults from the inside. Now, in general, which do you think is most dangerous to any church? Assaults from outside or is it assaults from inside? Assaults from inside are always more dangerous. In fact, you can make a case that persecution, you can make a case globally and historically that persecution has zero effect on people of faith. You could even argue historically and globally that persecution actually deepens and expands Christian faith. Observe the, the world today in places of the world where Christianity is most persecuted, it is most alive and most growing, and in places where it's most welcomed and even with government support, it is most stagnant. Now, I'm not suggesting that we pray for persecution. I am not there yet. I'm just observing that arrows from the outside just kind of bounce off. It's the threats from inside that threaten any church. And the early church, Acts chapter 6, we deal uh, with the threat of division and distraction. The early churches faces these twin threats of division and distraction, and these double dangers become familiar to every growing movement sense. So I've called this message, Getting Sidetracked. The church has this mission, and they want to be focused on it, and now the question is, will they be sidetracked in their mission? How does a church get sidetracked? Uh, most churches get sidetracked for two main reasons, letting little things become big or letting big things become little. Churches get sidetracked when they let little things become big things. In the late 1800s, there were two deacons in a small Baptist church in Mayfield County, Kentucky. And these two deacons hated each other, and they always opposed each other. And on one Sunday, one of the deacons hung a peg on the back wall for the minister to hang his hat. The other deacon was so upset that he had not been consulted. It led to uh, the, the church forming sides and eventually forming a church split. And to this day, the story goes, you can find in Mayfield County, Kentucky, the anti-peg Baptist church. This is, this is what divides churches. It's not the big things. It's usually a very small thing. It's minutia that's allowed to blow up and become a very big thing. This is what divides churches. You know, our church, our denomination has this motto uh, from history that says, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty or freedom. In the big things, in the essentials, we are unified. In the non-essentials, in the small things, we are free to disagree. In essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, freedom, and in all things, charity or love. We don't want to let little things become big things. But you also don't want to let the big things become little. Uh, we read in Acts 5.42 that the early church is proclaiming the good news. And now we will see if, the, uh, if a distraction is going to threaten them from keeping the big thing big. It's really a, a numeric problem the church is dealing with. There's a conflict between the Grecian Jews, that's the Greek-speaking Jews, the Hellenistoi, and the Hebrew-speaking Jews, the Hebraoi, uh, in the distribution of food. Now, in the New Testament, we read a lot about the division between Jews and Gentiles that dominates the whole New Testament, the division between Jews and Gentiles. It's going to come to a head in Acts chapter 15. We'll see that when we get there. 
But we can forget that not only was there a division between Jews and Gentiles, there was division between the Jews. And this cultural division led to discrimination against the widows of the Hellenists. Widows were especially needy in those days, as you can imagine. And it was common for widows to move to Jerusalem at the end of their life. It was thought uh, that it would be good to die and be buried in the Holy Land. And normally the Jewish synagogue would take care of the widows. But once a woman became a Christian, she was ineligible for public support. And so the church began to support their own widows and orphans. And it went really well. We talked repeatedly about the growing generosity, the amazing generosity uh, among the Christians. But when the number of Christians increased by thousands so rapidly, the system broke down. And, And one group started to feel alienated. And this kind of thing happens in churches all the time. It's not uncommon for one group in a church to feel neglected. Sometimes it occurs along racial lines, sometimes it's along generational lines, or along marital status. One group in the church feels uh, that, that their needs aren't being met. And in our day, if the group that we're a part of, if we feel the group we're a part of, our needs aren't being met, we will often just leave that church and go to a different church. And we can be kind of consumeristic about this. If you don't meet my needs, I will go down the street to another church that will. And the first church in the first century did not do that. They didn't just pick up and go to another church. You know why? Because there was no other church to go to. At this point in history, there is one church in the city. There is one church in the world. And so they had to work their differences out. This conflict could have led to the first church split. It would have been very easy for the Grecian Jews to leave and start their own church. So we could have had in Jerusalem the, 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 the first church of Jerusalem and then the second church of Jerusalem, uh, you know, the Greek assembly. And this could have been the first split. This could have lead to division. The second threat is not division but distraction. And Luke describes this in Acts chapter 6, verse 2. Apparently, the apostles, uh, the apostles have been criticized for the inequalities in the food distribution program. And maybe the thought was the apostles should have more hands-on uh, control about who gets how much food. Uh, either way, Luke identifies this as, as distracting to the apostles' call to the ministry of the word and to prayer. And such a distraction is a major threat to the spread of the gospel. This is what you heard read. So the 12, the apostles, gathered all the disciples together, and they said, it would not be right for us, the apostles, to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. We'll turn this responsibility over to a new group. Now, if you were there, if you heard the apostles say this, what would you have thought that day? Would you have thought, man, the apostles think they're too good to wait tables? They think are too far above us, or would you have thought, good for you, apostles. We need you to stay on your task. We, the Christian community, need you to stick to your primary ministry. Uh, What would you have thought? Um, I don't know. It looks like it worked pretty well here because we read words that are rarely spoken in organizational development. This proposal pleased the whole group. Miracle of miracles. The apostles were called to the ministry of the word and prayer, but they were tempted to neglect their focus areas to focus on other things. And I experience this all the time. I am called to lead and to preach, but throughout my week, it is so easy for me to be distracted from my calling. Uh, A lot of you know that when 
someone's going to be ordained as a pastor in our tradition, uh, very similar to other traditions. You know, we require a master's degree. Uh, we require written theological exams. We require oral examination. But you may not know that we also require of all pastors that they go through psychological examinations. And the sad thing is that I used to have to defend why we require all of our pastors to go through psychological testing. I no longer have to defend that. Most people think that's a really good idea. So I went through my psychological testing 30 years ago, and some of you are thinking, you know, they should redo that every now and again. <laughs> and they gave me a battery of tests and personality tests, and one of the tests had to do with this old um, division of extrovert versus introvert. And at that time, I tested off-the-scale extrovert. I don't know if I would test that way today, but I was off-the-scale extrovert. Now, I thought that would be a good thing. Wouldn't, wouldn't you think they'd want pastors who are people, people, and like being around people? But my testers were very concerned. Uh, they said, with, with you being such an extrovert, will you have the requisite ability to study, to pray, to be alone? Or every time you're in your office and you hear a conversation outside, are you going to be tempted to go, oh, is there a party going on? Is there a conversation I can be a part of? And I feel that temptation all uh, the time. Uh, you know, there's a joke about churches and pastors that we have a lot of meetings, and that's true. We, uh, I heard, you know, one guy, a pastor had on his tombstone, gone to another meeting. I actually like meetings. You may not like meetings. I like meetings because I like people. I especially like meetings that feel like something got accomplished and not all my meetings are that way. But I've gone too often through my week with so many meetings and so many appointments and so many things I should have said no to and I've defended it as a pastor saying that well, as a pastor I want to be accessible and available but the truth is that I've failed you because I haven't always given enough time to prayer or to sermon preparation, and then I could stand up here and have nothing to say on a Sunday, but of course I'm not going to do that, so I take the time away from my family time, neglecting another calling of mine as a husband and as a father. Uh, I can be a distracted leader, a distracted husband, and a, and a distracted um, father, and it's no one's fault but my own. And the things that distract me are usually interesting things and good things and noble things. They're just not primary things. You can't do big things if you're distracted by small things. Do you ever get distracted by what you believe is your primary calling? You know God's given you a task. You feel it to the core of your being that God has asked you to do something, but you're tempted by all these good things, these noble things, these other things. They're just not primary things. Distraction from calling and purpose is one of my chief concerns for our church. You know, our church, every church, is called to share the good news of Jesus Christ with, with family and with friends. But if we're not careful, good activity can end up being a distraction rather than a help. So here in Acts chapter 6, we see two threats. We see the threat of division that's shown in the conflict of the food distribution program. Division and distraction as the apostles are tempted to move away from their ministry of the word. And the solution to all of this we see in the book of Acts is good leadership. This might be why I love the book of Acts so much. We see good leadership. Uh, for example, they, they did not ignore the problem, the apostles. Uh, that wouldn't be good leadership to ignore the problem. But secondly, they didn't fix the problem themselves. It was a very important problem, and they delegated to a group of other people. 
There's interesting word play in Acts chapter 6. The word serve in Greek, diakonos, from which we get the word deacon, diakonos, serve, is used twice in Acts chapter 6, once to talk about the food distribution program and once to talk about the ministry of the word. So the apostles really, the word play is, they're, they're saying, um, instead of us serving food, we're going to serve the word. Both types of service are important, and both require dedicated, focused, gifted leaders. They fixed the problem that way, and they did not micromanage. Choose seven people, and we will turn the ministry over to them. And I wonder if that made the apostles nervous the first time they had to take a piece of the ministry and hand it off to somebody else. What if those guys blow it? What if they fail? Or what if they succeed? What if, what if they turn out to be better leaders than us, the apostles? I don't know if the apostles felt that. The apostles did set it up for success by the criteria of leader. They said, choose from among yourselves seven people full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. They didn't say choose uh, the, the most popular people in the church. They didn't say the, the, the most good-looking or the wealthiest. Uh, serve people that are mature in faith and wise in, in, uh, in practical ways that can handle this project. They set it up for success. A lot of people say what you see here in Acts chapter 6 is the beginnings of church structure. This movement, this movement that's just on fire in the first century needs some structure. And so we see some elements of good church organization. Uh, first of all, a division of responsibilities based on gift and call. Everyone has a gift given to them by the Holy Spirit, and they begin to organize around people's spiritual giftings and around their call. Secondly, the leaders are chosen by the people. Choose from among yourselves. Now, the book of Acts has some leadership positions that are appointed and some that are chosen by the people, just like our church has uh, both of those kinds of opportunities. Number three, the leaders are covered in prayer. They bring those leaders forward, and the apostles set them apart uh, through prayer, and we're going to pray for our leaders at the end here. And the structure evolves according to need. They are reformed and always reforming, and throughout the book of Acts, as the situation changes, the structure changes to match the new reality. And so the leadership responds in such a way to keep little things little and to keep big things big. And I am so grateful for the elders of our church and for their wisdom and oversight. You know, our elders long to see our church functioning according to gifting. And if you have not yet found what your spiritual gifting is from God or haven't found a place to serve in the church or beyond the church, you know, you can always go, let me remind you, you can go to ward.church/serve and you see all the places you can plug in in our church. ward.church/serve. And if that's overwhelming to you, a lot of people like to find that one-time first serve to get to meet some people first, and we have some great first serve opportunities coming up like the Christmas festival December 4, and if you go to ward.church/festival, Uh, You'll see it's super clear, 30 minutes at this task or 30 minutes over here, and people like to get in to get to meet some people and try a way of service. Christmas Eve works very similarly. But I want to encourage all of you to find your place, find your role, find your gifts, Uh, because we believe, generally, we believe a church operates best when it's guarded by elders, guided by the staff, and gifted through the membership. Let me say that again. 
We believe a church operates best when it's guarded by the elders, guided by the staff, and gifted through the membership. In Acts chapter 6, we see not only the beginning of structure in the church, but the beginnings of a shared ministry. When you look back in the book of Acts at chapters we've already covered, chapters 2 through 5, you see a lot of really wonderful things happening there. Uh, Worship, caring, teaching, outreach. The only problem is it's only the apostles that are doing it. The apostles preached. They decided. They healed. They handed out the money. It's Peter this and John that in every chapter uh, through chapter 5. But in Acts chapter 6, the game changes. Now the apostles start to hand off ministry and give ministry away. And the way the work of God gets done in the world is forever changed right here in chapter 6 where the ministry begins to belong to the people. It's given to regular, ordinary people to respond to their gifting and all the people. And look, going forward in the book of Acts, we'll see ministry um, handed out to all different kinds of people. Later in this chapter, Stephen begins to preach. In, in chapter 8... Philip becomes an evangelist. In chapter 9, an up-and-coming leader named Saul enters the story. And later in chapter 9, another very surprising thing happens. A woman's name is mentioned for the first time in a ministry context. Dorcas, the seamstress, soon to be followed by Lydia, the church planter, Priscilla, the teacher, and Philip's daughters who prophesied. It it, it was the beginning of a new day for the church in which ministry would be placed in the hands of ordinary men and women gifted by the Holy Spirit and called by God the Father. And then look what happened in chapter 6. What was the result of all this leadership, of all this organization, of all this gifting? Here was the result. This is the end of chapter 6. So the word of God spread. It's exactly what the apostles were going for. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And in this surprising note, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Priests, ironically, were the hardest people to reach. Priests had the most people to, the most to lose in the new system, and now even the priests are coming to faith for crying out loud. That's how crazy this movement has gotten. It's a vibrant, growing church once more because people are getting involved in ministry. May it be so in us as well. I'm going to close this in prayer, and uh, I, I want to ask uh, some leaders to stand, both here and in Farmington Hills, as we pray. Uh, first of all, if we have any elders, deacons, or trustees, would you please stand where you are? Um, not just elders, session members, but if you're an elder, would you stand? We want to pray for you, elders, deacons, trustees. If you're a small group leader, would you stand to your feet? If you're a Bible study leader, would you stand up? Uh, If you work with kids or students, you are a leader. If you work with kids or students, you stand to your feet. If you lead some group, uh, some ministry in our church, if you have a Bible study in the workplace, something like that, stand to your feet. If you lead something, we want to pray for you now as a church. Just remain standing, please, as the church prays for you and for each other. Let's pray. Oh, 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 God, we pray for the leaders of our church that you would give them wisdom and discernment and courage and guidance as they shepherd us, as they lead us to be the people that you've designed us to be. We pray uh, protection over them in this unique season, that you would uh, allow them to have a fresh 
fresh insight of your Holy Spirit. God, we thank you for your church. We pray that you would protect us from division and distraction. That you would help us to not let little things become big and not let us to let big things become little. Help us to stay focused on our mission in this world. Release, Father, the giftings of your church, each part of the body playing its unique role so that we may be the church to each other and to the world. And to you be all honor, glory, and praise in Jesus' name. And the church said together, amen.